Let's start again. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2. There we go. One morning, a wife was trying to get her husband up for church. She kept pushing and shoving him, but she couldn't get him out of bed. Get up, George, she said. We're going to be late for church again. And finally, he rolled over in frustration, and he said, I told you last night that I'm not going to church, and that's final. Now let me get back to sleep. So she decided to plead with him. George, please, it's important for you to be there. Please. And when she realized that approach wasn't going to work, she decided to use another. Okay, George, she said, give me two reasons why you shouldn't go to church. Fine, he said, I'll give you two reasons. Number one, I don't like those people. And number two, they don't like me either. And that's why I'm not going. Well, there was a long pause as she thought about that answer. And finally, George broke the silence and said, if you feel it's so important that I go to church, why don't you give me two reasons why I should go? And she said, George, first of all, you know that the Bible says it's important for you to go to church. And second, you're the pastor. <laughs> My guess is that you've probably had mornings like that. When you needed a couple good reasons to go to church. And if you're finding yourself struggling to find those reasons, I want to help you out this morning. Acts chapter 2 records the birth of the church. And in verses 42 to 47, we get a sort of snapshot of their corporate life. And one thing is readily apparent here, and that is that they had plenty of reasons to gather together. Nobody was sleeping in. And as we go through these verses this week and next, I want to pick out seven characteristics of the early church. And as we do so, I want you to think about whether these characteristics mark your life as an individual and whether these characteristics mark our life as a church. First characteristic, they were separated. That is, they were set apart from the world. They made it clear where they stood. And for that, I want to back up to verse 41, where it says, So then those who had received His Word were baptized. First step in the Christian life is baptism. And as we said last week, it's not part of the gospel, but it should be my first response to receiving the gospel. And we see that here in verse 41. When they had received His Word, which was the gospel, then they were baptized. You say, well, if baptism is not necessary for salvation, then what is the point of baptism? Well, baptism is a kind of drama. It's a kind of picture. It's, a, it's like a visual aid and baptism is really saying two things. Number one, it's saying I am separated from the old and I am identified with the new. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2, speaking about the children of Israel, Paul says, all, who were, bap all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's an interesting statement. Paul says when the children of Israel went into the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. Now what does that mean? It means they were making a definite step saying we are leaving, we are separating ourselves from Pharaoh and Egypt, and we are identifying ourselves with Moses and the promised land. 
In Acts chapter 6, where we have that picture defined for us. It says in baptism, we identify with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And again, there's the idea of baptism. Death, burial, rising to walk in newness of life. It is death, separation from the world, separation from sin, separation from my past and who I used to be, and it is identification with the new Jesus Christ. In 1990, outfielder Brett Butler left the San Francisco Giants and signed as a free agent with the Los Angeles Dodgers. They're cross-state rivals. And when Butler returned to San Francisco for the first time as a Los Angeles Dodger, the reaction of the crowd was mixed between cheers and boos. And during that moment when the crowd was mixed on how they were going to greet Brett Butler, he decided to walk over and hug Los Angeles manager Tommy Lasorda, causing the entire stadium of Giant fans to boo. After the game, this is what he said. It turned a page in my career. I'm not a giant anymore. That just kind of solidified it, and I wanted them to know I'm an L.A. Dodger now. Well, baptism is like giving Jesus a hug. It's making a statement. I am leaving who I used to be. I am leaving the world. I am now identified with Him. I am now a Christian. And the believers in the early church made that statement by baptism. They were separated. They were set apart. They made it clear where they stood. Second characteristic. They were committed. And for that, we can look at verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Hearing the Word of God taught, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer were not just things they felt like they ought to get around to. They were not just things that they needed to work into their schedule. You get the idea that this was not a casual commitment on their part. This was not like joining some social club. It says they devoted themselves. You want to know how you can tell what you're devoted to? Just look at what you're continually doing. They were continually devoting themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. In fact, down in verse 46, it tells us that they were gathering together daily. Does that describe you? Are you continually devoting yourself to teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer? If we had a church full of people with your commitment, how would we be doing? Now I want to look at these things that they were committed to. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. Those are the things that occupied their time. Now that's a simple list. And I think a lot of churches today have lost their identity because they are committed active, busy, doing all kinds of things except these basic things. And this is a good measuring stick for a church. What should it be committed to? What should it be passionate about? What should be its priorities? What should it be busy doing? We have a verse here that tells us four simple things they were committed to continually. The first is the apostles' teaching. You might think to be led by the Spirit means that you have to abandon your intellect. Some people seem to think that way today. 
You ever heard anybody say, I'm not into doctrine, I just want to love Jesus? Well, that sounds pretty good. But if you want to really know Jesus and really love Jesus and to be spiritually strong and useful, you have to be committed to knowing the apostles' doctrine. That was the first thing that the early church committed themselves to. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us that a transformed life begins with a renewed mind. And so the apostles were not just about making converts, they were about making disciples. And they were not going to be distracted from that. When we get to chapter 6 and verse 2, they say there, it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. There are other things that are good, but this is the best. And we're going to be committed to this. You see, that's what Jesus told them to do. In Matthew 28, 19, He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You know where we find the Apostles' Doctrine today? It's in the New Testament. Which makes my calling and direction as a pastor very clear. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the Word. You say, well, what else am I supposed to do? Preach the Word. And then he says, be in season, out of season. Be ready when it's convenient and when it's not. Be ready always to preach the Word. You see, I'm not called to preach politics or morality or psychology, or social issues, except where the Word of God speaks to those things. I am simply called to preach the Word. And that's a very freeing thing. I don't have the pressure of standing up in front of you Sunday after Sunday and telling you what I think. I have the privilege of standing up here and telling you what God thinks. And not only do I get to speak God's Word, but I get to speak it in God's power. I have God's Word, God's gift, God's power. Now that's a formula for success. To me, it's like, it's like batting in Wrigley Field with the wind blowing out. I prepare, I study, I pray. The best I can do is a pop-up. I got warning track power. It's like a can of corn every time I hit it. But you know what happens? God takes my pop-up and in His power, He has the ability to blow it over the fence. He takes those inning-ending pop-ups and He turns them into home runs for His glory. And that's the exciting thing. When I am faithful to proclaim His Word, His way. But I want to stress another point here on teaching. Because the preacher is not the only factor. There's also another factor, and that is the listener. And in our mile-a-minute culture, we are committed to having everything distilled into a 10-second soundbite. We want it fast and we want it simple. In fact, I know Christians that are still looking for the cliff notes on spirituality. How can I get it condensed down to the simplest possible format? We see, the key is not to condense the truth. The key is to expand your capacity for the truth. Not only should there be anointed preaching today, there should also be anointed listening. 
And that's what we're reading about here. These people were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which tells me that they were great listeners. Now, what makes a great listener? Well, I can point to two things in Scripture that make a great listener. Number one, they listened with a hungry heart. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We are to be hungry for the word of God the way a newborn baby is hungry for milk. You say, well, I used to be hungry like that, but I've kind of lost my appetite. How do I develop that hunger for the Word of God. You know, somebody warned me the other day with the statement that sweets beget sweets. And what they meant by that was when you start eating sweets, then you want to have more sweets. Well, let me encourage you, similarly, that truth begets truth. When you feed on the Word, you want to have more of the Word. So if you want to increase your appetite for the Word of God, just increase your intake. That was true of the early church. They came with a spiritual appetite. Second characteristic of a good listener is they listened with a willing heart. James wrote probably the first letter written in the New Testament, and in the very first chapter, here's what he said, but prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Did you get that? It's not simply enough to listen to the Word of God. It's not enough to simply nod at the preaching of the Word of God. It's not enough to simply say amen to the Word of God because if that's all you're doing, James says you're deceiving yourself. You're just kidding yourself if you think that saying amen to the truth is the end. Because you see, the design of the Word of God is not to be thought-provoking. The design of the Word of God is to be life-changing. And the sermon is not done until it's been done. The sermon is not finished on Sunday. It's finished on Monday through Saturday. We listen to the Word of God in order to apply the Word of God. And the early church was committed to the apostles' teaching, which meant they had hungry hearts and willing hearts. They were anxious to hear and they were anxious to do. Second thing they were committed to, also in verse 42, is fellowship. We generally call picnics, ball games, coffee and cookies, fellowship time. Let me say this and listen carefully. Those are opportunities for fellowship. Fellowship may or may not take place at those times. Because the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. It means to share in common with. And what is it that we as Christians share in common? Well, it's our life in Christ. And to help you determine what fellowship is, it's something that you can only have with another believer. And that's why Paul asked the rhetorical question in 2 Corinthians 6.14, what fellowship has light with darkness? The answer is none. uh, Darkness can't fellowship with light. There is no fellowship there. I can only have fellowship with someone who shares in common with me the life of Christ. 
doesn't even matter how well I know them. I've gone to speak at camps before when I didn't know anybody. And I fit right in with those people. Why? Because we had so much in common. We share the same life, the same Lord, the same Spirit. That's fellowship. In fact, let me show you an interesting verse. Keep your finger in Acts 2 and turn over to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. John says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. Did you know that you can have fellowship with the Apostle John? You say, well, he's been dead for almost 2,000 years. Well, he's writing here, he says, so that we can have fellowship. How are we having fellowship? Because he says, I'm talking to you about what I have seen and heard. What's that? His relationship to Jesus Christ. How do we have fellowship with John? He's talking to you and I about what we share in common with him, which is Jesus Christ. So when you read 1 John, you are actually having fellowship with John because that's what fellowship is. It's sharing what we have in common, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse 3, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Fellowship is not just horizontal. Fellowship is vertical. Fellowship is a triangular relationship. And so fellowship doesn't happen on just the horizontal. It happens when we bring the Lord into the equation. There's, there's you, there's me, and there's the Lord. And when he comes into the, the equation, then we are having fellowship. So if we get together and everything is just horizontal, we haven't experienced fellowship. If we get together as Christians and all we talk about is politics, the weather, sports, we haven't had fellowship. See, I can talk about the Cardinals trade for Mark McGuire with anybody. But as a Christian... We share something unique. We share the Lord. We share the Spirit of God. We share our faith. And when I go away from a conversation with someone and I am encouraged and refreshed and built up spiritually, then I know that I've had fellowship. But let me add another dimension to that. Because fellowship also goes beyond that. It is also sharing a common cause. And Paul captures that in a phrase in Philippians 1.27 where he exhorts us to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. As Christians, we share a common cause. What is the common cause? It is the gospel. And if you want to experience fellowship in its truest sense, then, in, then get into the trenches with someone else shoulder to shoulder and work in striving for the faith of the gospel with them, and you will have fellowship. You know, oftentimes we try to achieve fellowship through entertainment. I hear people say, let's have fellowship. Let's go somewhere where we can be entertained. Let's go to a ball game. Let's go on a canoe trip. Nothing wrong with those things. But if you want to have true fellowship, it's experienced as we strive together in a common cause. So you and I can go to a thousand ball games. 
We will never get as close as we will if you and I go together and share the gospel with one unbeliever. Because that is striving together for the faith of the gospel. This weekend I got hooked into playing on the, the men's, the old men's softball team at the tournament. I was the youngest guy on the team, I think. Uh, but it reminded me of the camaraderie that you can have when you're striving together for a common cause. Our cause was to win. Uh, we lost the first two games, so we reduced our commitment to staying healthy. <laughs> but you know, in a, in a sporting event, when you've got a group of guys and you're all working towards something, there's that encouragement and that, that sense of, yeah, we have something in common. Whenever a football player retires, he inevitably, they ask him what he's going to miss the most, what does he say? I'm going to miss the locker room. I'm going to miss the camaraderie with all those guys, all those big sweaty guys. What developed those relationships? They were together working toward a common cause. Now if that happens on the physical plane, how much more does it happen on the spiritual plane? When I went to Bible college, the people I was the closest to in terms of fellowship were not the guys I played on the basketball team with. They were not the guys I lived in the dorm with and bought deep dish Chicago pizza. They were the guys that I went with every Monday night down to Cook County Jail and shared the gospel with to the inmates there. There was a bonding there that went far beyond anything else. And today, if I see those guys, and that's been over 20 years ago, there's still a closeness there because we strive together for the faith of the gospel. Let me add a third ingredient to fellowship. There's another dimension to it, and that is that fellowship is also sharing my possessions in common with others. In fact, if you slide down in our passage to verse 44, the same Greek word is used at the end of that verse where it says they had all things in common. They shared their possessions, they shared their homes, they shared their meals. When anyone had a need, they gave to meet that need. In fact, this same Greek word is also used in Romans 15 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to refer to contributions, money, given to the church at Jerusalem. So fellowship is also sharing in common my material possessions with others. When you give to this church, that's fellowship. When you give to meet the needs of an individual, that's fellowship. When you help someone fix their car, that's fellowship. When you make a meal for someone's family who's been sick, that's fellowship. And you see, the early church was committed to that. A lot of people come today to church to get. And they say, I'm not going there anymore because I'm not getting anything. What I see in the early church is that they came to give. They wanted to be around each other in order to minister to the needs of other people. We need to capture that attitude and that part of fellowship. And next week when we get further into the, this passage, I think you're going to be surprised by the level of sharing that went on in the early church. The early church was committed to fellowship, sharing the Lord in common, sharing their common cause in the gospel, and sharing their possessions. Third thing they were committed to is also in verse 42, and that's the breaking of bread. It's also referred to as the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 
It's referred to as the Eucharist, and that word comes from 1 Corinthians 11.24 where it says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. The Greek word for given thanks is that word Eucharist. It's also called communion in 1 Corinthians 10.16. One thing is readily apparent about the breaking of bread in Scripture, and that is that it was important. In Luke 22:15, Jesus said on the night before He went to the cross, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly desired to do this. Now why would Jesus earnestly desire to eat the Passover with His disciples the day before He was going to the cross? Well, the answer is because He took that Passover meal, which was a remembrance of how they came out of Egypt, And he turned it into a new remembrance feast of the cross. And a few verses later in Luke 22, 19, Jesus said to the disciples, this do in remembrance of me. Now that's a command. Do this in remembrance of me. There are only two ceremonial things that Jesus ever commanded us to do. One is baptism and the other is is the breaking of bread. Which tells me that to consistently and willingly neglect the breaking of bread is sin. Jesus commanded that we do it. It was important to Him. And it was important to the early church. That's evident in verse 42. Because it says that they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. Can you say that? Can you use that verb, devoted, in reference to your commitment to the breaking of bread? The early church could. In fact, if you slide down to verse 46, it indicates that they were doing so daily. It says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Let me show you another verse. Look over at Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Interesting verse. This describes the church at Troas in verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. Now I want you to notice the priority there. On the first day of the week, we gathered together, why? To break bread. And Paul happened to be there, and he started preaching. Now, you would think that if the Apostle Paul was at your church, you would gather together to hear the Apostle Paul. That's not what they did. They gathered together to break bread, and Paul happened to be there. You see, their priority was remembering the Lord Jesus and His death on the cross for them. And too often times, I'm afraid, our church today revolves around a pulpit. The early church, it seems to me, revolved around a table. And on that table was bread and a cup. That bread was a picture of the body of the Lord Jesus that was broken on the cross. And that cup was a picture of the blood of the Lord Jesus that was shed there. And daily, the early church met together to remember what Jesus had done for them. To go back to the foot of the cross and remember where their salvation came from. 
they were devoting themselves continually to that. We're going to stop there this morning and pick up again next week at that point. But if you're struggling for reasons to get out of bed on Sunday morning, the early church had plenty of them. And we've just gotten started. Number one, they were separated. They made it clear where they stood. They were separated from the world, identified with Christ. Secondly, they were committed to teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. Hang on to those thoughts and we'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask that we stand in closing this morning. And we're going to sing a hymn together, number 252. We're going to sing this hymn as a prayer to the Lord because it really says to Him, I surrender all. And that's the real issue that we're talking about in the early church. They had given themselves to the Lord and that was evident in all that they did. As we sing, you come forward as the Lord has spoken to you.